Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Hey, it's a quick reminder because it's Thursday that we have the Bulwark Plus exclusive live stream every Thursday night at uh, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, uh, 7 o'clock Central Time. If you're a Bulwark member, you can tune in and uh, hear the whole team discussing the news of the week. And boy, there's a lot to talk about this week. I'm guessing there might be some disagreements about some of the things that are coming down the pike. So if you have not yet signed up for Bulwark Plus, please consider doing it. Uh, we, we certainly appreciate all of your support. You'll have access to uh, our suite of, our entire suite of, of podcasts, uh, not just this one, uh, Mona Charon's uh, uh, Beg to Differ, as well as the Next Level podcast, the Secret podcast. You will also receive uh, complete access to our Morning Shots newsletter that I put out every morning, uh, Jonathan Last Triad, and of course, Jim Swift's Overtime newsletter. So again, uh, tonight, uh, the Bulwark live stream at eight o'clock, I'm guessing that uh, the Gates story is going to come up again. I'm guessing that we'll be talking about that. The the war over masks, uh, vaccine passports, uh, the massive infrastructure package. There's so much going on. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different uh, today because we have been so inwardly focused. We have been so much engaged with our domestic political navel gazing that we really haven't taken time to look around the rest of the world um, and what's been going on. So our guest today is perfect to describe that. Uh, Ambassador Eric Edelman, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, returns to the podcast. Ambassador, thanks for coming back. Charlie, great to be with you. Well, I want to talk about the Iran deal. I want to talk about EU and China and Korea. But you are out with a new report about U.S. strategy. The headline is U.S. strategy for a lonely turkey. And I'm, I, I just want to focus on this for a moment. So first of all, um, there was a, there was a time when we were really talking about what's going on with uh, with the United States and Turkey, our relations with with Erdogan. But tell me, first of all, why you describe Turkey as lonely? Well, you know, a number of years back, uh, uh, when uh, Ahmet Davutoglu was the foreign minister of Turkey and was very close advisor to President Erdogan, uh, he described uh, Turkey's foreign policy as one of having uh, no problems with neighbors. Um, and when you look at Turkey today, which, as you know, Charlie sits in a very important piece of uh, geopolitical um, real estate, uh, and you look around, uh, Turkey has nothing but problems uh, with with its neighbors. Uh, it it has uh, very strained relations uh, in uh, Libya and uh, Syria, uh, and in the Black Sea with Russia. Even as it buys military equipment, the S four hundred air and missile defense system from uh, Russia, uh, it's got uh, troops in in uh, North. Uh, Eastern Syria, where they are occasionally clashing with uh, Kurdish forces uh, that have been typically aligned with us in the anti-ISIL campaign. Um, It's uh, got uh, problems in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, with Greece and Cyprus. Its relations with uh, Israel have become uh, very envenomed over the years, uh, and its relations with Iraq have been problematic. So Almost everywhere one looks, uh, you know, Turkey has uh, got problems. Um, and the reference in the title of the report really is to a comment made a couple of years back by 
um, Erdogan's uh, still C- uh, chief advisor, uh, national security advisor, Ibrahim Kalin, that Turkey uh, sort of relished its uh, its loneliness, which is a big turn from uh, where Turkey had been uh, in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, when it had a very good relationship, not just with the United States, but with uh, with Israel um, and relations with Greece were improving uh, as well in the wake of the earthquake that shook both Greece and Turkey in 1999. So uh, that's that's really why we chose the title. So, you know, you, you mentioned the troops in Syria where they clash occasionally with our, our, our one-time allies, the, the, the Kurds. That was a big story at one time uh, when the Trump administration essentially opened the door for Turkey to move in to Syria. And yet the story seems to have faded away. What happened? There was a lot of uh, concern that there might actually be genocide, that the Kurds uh, would be betrayed by our, our decision. How has that actually played out? Well, we still have a small force, uh, uh, special forces there uh, that have uh, helped keep a lid uh, on things. But you see periodic flare-ups between uh, the Turks and, and the Kurds on this. And it, it always has the potential for degenerating into uh, a bigger problem. The, the issue for Turkey, though, is that they now have gone very far afield um, in uh, Libya, for instance, where... Uh, they have intervened in the Caucasus, where they intervened last fall uh, to help um, Azerbaijan win back some territory that had been occupied by Armenia for 25 uh, years or so. So they're pr- pretty overextended right now. Um, and I think there are concerns in the Turkish military about whether uh, Turkey is becoming overextended. And that's, of course, not even taking into account uh, some of the naval activity uh, in the eastern Mediterranean that has stirred up. Uh, not just Greece and Cyprus, but a number of our uh, NATO allies. So, for instance, France uh, has run, um, uh, you know, uh, freedom of navigation exercises, what we call FONOPS, uh, that typically would have done been done in the Cold War era or in other times by the United States of America. But uh, since our, our attention is elsewhere, the French have picked up um, the, the gauntlet of maintaining freedom of the seas. So what should our strategy be with, with, with Turkey? Because Turkey was once a very important ally of ours, and obviously that's been incredibly strained. We obviously have, uh, you know, rather significant military stakes, um, you know, in, in, in the region. But so what do you do with someone like Erdogan who has shown a, a willingness to thumb his nose at the United States? Well, it's, it's a very tricky problem. And I think uh, one of the problems that the Biden administration faces is not just how to deal with our uh, adversaries like uh, Russia and China um, and Iran and North Korea, but how do you deal with very problematic friends? Um, and Turkey is, if not at the top of the list, it's pretty close. I mean, I, I suppose it's a photo finish between Turkey and, and Saudi Arabia you know, for who is the more uh, complicated, difficult ally. But there are others on the list as well, like Pakistan and and, and Egypt. And those are, you know, very real uh, thorny, thorny problems. So on the question of how to deal with Erdogan uh, and, um, and Turkey, uh, I think first our sense is that the Biden administration, and I should say this report is a, a task force report, uh, that was issued by uh, Jinsa, the Jewish Institute of National Security Affairs. Um, and I co-chair the task force with mm-hmm. uh, former General Chuck Wald, 
who was deputy Yukon uh, commander, very well experienced in Turkey. Um, part of it is, first of all, to reinstitutionalize a relationship that in the uh, Trump administration became personalized. So uh, you mentioned before uh, the Trump administration um, sort of uh, knocking over the table with uh, the Turks and, and Kurds in northeastern Syria. That was, as you recall, a result of, on two different occasions, of phone calls between uh, Erdogan and Trump. Uh, but a lot of business was also being uh, carried out by, um, by Trump's family. I mean, it was really a family Trump to Erdogan family relationship. Uh, right. Erdogan's son-in-law, uh, Mehmet Al Bayrak, um, who was then a, a uh, deputy foreign or deputy prime minister, uh, was very involved with Jared Kushner uh, back and forth. As was uh, the uh, the son-in-law of Aydin Doan, who is a business partner of the Trumps and a major uh, economic uh, and business figure in in Turkey. So, the first order of business is to kind of reinstitutionalize the relationship. And and the Biden administration, to its credit, I think has been doing that. So uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken recently met uh, with uh, Foreign Minister Cavusoglu, uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, um, has uh, had a phone call with um, his counterpart, Ibrahim Kalin, who I mentioned a moment ago. And so far, uh, Joe Biden has not uh, had a telephone call with Tayyip Erdogan, which has become the source of much speculation in the Turkish press. Now, there's also some talk that there will be a phone call perhaps this week uh, or maybe next week after the president, uh, our president, has talked to uh, Greek President Mitsotakis. But that's already a big change, you know, from, uh, you know, what happened previously. And I think that's a salutary step. Uh, the other thing I think we have to do is to try and rally our allies to have a common um, approach to Turkey, uh, the other allies. There are many other allies who are concerned about Turkish behavior, for instance, in the Eastern Mediterranean, but we haven't really gotten everybody on the same page. And in particular, the EU has, because it's fearful of uh, Erdogan's uh, turning the tap of immigration, he's been very good at weaponizing the threat of hordes of Syrian and other refugees passing through Turkey into EU territory. They have had a tendency to want to propitiate him and buy him mm. off. So we need to get sort of uh, all the allies kind of on the same page about this. And and then I think, unfortunately, we have to become pretty ruthlessly transactional with the Turks. I mean, although Donald Trump was famously transactional, I think his transactions more had to do with his concerns about the Trump Hotel in Istanbul than it did about U.S. national interests. We have to be transactional you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what have you done for me lately uh, when we deal with issues with Turkey? And they need to be dealt with essentially seriatim rather than as a larger package. We've tended with Turkey over the years to engage in a form of what I call political moral hazard, uh, which is to say we say Turkey is too big to fail because of its geographic location, because it's so important for so many different issues, because it's a, a major NATO member with a large military. And so our attitude has been, if we treat them like an ally, eventually they'll respond and behave like one. That has failed over and over and over again. And um, hmm. the, uh, I think we have to just be much more about, you know, okay, you need to, you know, um, we need to, we're going to impose these CATSA sanctions on you uh, for 
the purchase of the S400. And here's what you have to do to get out of it. And we're not going to package this up with other issues and, and just deal with them all on you know <laughs> a, a single basis. And I think there's some receptivity in the Biden administration for that kind of approach. And I say that advisedly because Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, and I together wrote an op-ed in Politico about uh, two and a half years ago that advocated precisely this kind of approach. Well, let's talk about Saudi Arabia for a moment. You mentioned um, other problematic allies. Uh, the, the Biden administration has uh, it seems like it's trying to thread the needle dealing with the uh, with the uh, Saudi regime uh, after the Khashoggi murder. the 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 administration released all of the uh, the reports linking MBS to the murder of of Khashoggi, but has stopped short of imposing any specific sanctions. So talk to me a little bit about the delicate dance the Biden administration is doing with the Saudis at the moment. Yeah. So as I said, you know, the Saudis are uh, probably, you know, maybe slightly ahead of the Turks as a problematic ally or maybe slightly behind. But um, the first step that the Biden administration took was to uh, order a review of a package of arms sales that had been uh, launched under the Trump administration. Uh, that obviously sent a signal. The release of the uh, DNI report on MBS was obviously another. I think what you're also seeing is, again, uh, an effort at reinstitutionalizing the relationship. This is a relationship that very much became a family-to-family relationship and an MBS. Uh, and so it was a Trump-Al-Saud uh, family relationship rather than a government to government relationship. Now the the Saudis actually probably like that because they you know it's a it's a family regime and so the idea of having a family family rather than government to government relationship I can imagine appealed uh, to to MBS. But um, I think the Biden administration has you know uh, correctly uh, you know focused on having you know minister to minister talks uh, at the appropriate levels, um, and is sort of to the extent possible, and it's not totally possible, but trying to marginalize MBS as, as much as one can. Now it's very likely that he at some point is going to become the King. And so there's a limit to how much you can marginalize him, but it sends a signal about what kind of behavior the U S will, you know, sort of tolerate in an ally and what it won't. And I think that's important. Now, again, you can't cut your nose off to spite your face. Um, Saudi Arabia is going to be very, very important, particularly in dealing with Iran. Um, and I hope ultimately that uh, the review of the arms sales is completed and that they go forward because some of those are uh, important uh, links to uh, between the United States and Saudi Arabia, important tools of influence for the United States in the region. And the problem, of course, is that if we completely pull back uh, there are you know others who are only too happy to fill the void russians chinese etc um and and those relationships you know i think would be uh you know less uh, salutary for the region as a whole and for regional security so let's talk about russia in terms of dramatic changes of foreign policy uh, the relationship between the presidency and uh, vladimir putin would certainly rank right up there uh Joe Biden referring to uh, Vladimir Putin as a killer, which apparently they took uh, very, very uh, personally. And uh, you had the withdrawal of the ambassador. So um, I want to get your 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 take on that. There are some people who thought that perhaps that was uh, 
undiplomatic on, on Biden's part to call uh, Vladimir Putin a killer. Well, it might have been. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. Completely accurate, but but it is completely accurate. Yeah, and, of course, and of course, it's a corrective to, um, you know, the sort of uh, gross moral equivalence that um, Donald Trump uh, tended to practice when it came to Russia, uh, telling Bill O'Reilly and Joe Scarborough, "What did you think? We're so innocent. You know, we kill people too. We're just as bad as he is." Which, which, by the way, is precisely what you know, Putin and. Uh, the Russian government in their uh, information operations try to convey, uh, you know, to both the American public and to the world at large, which is we're no different from them. Um, you know, we, we our foibles and, and flaws are every bit the same as as theirs, uh, and it's of course not true, um, and it's I think detrimental to having a, a sound Russia policy. Um, I think the real interesting question uh, will be exactly sort of what the Biden administration does here. That one of their first steps, uh, which I didn't agree with, was the, um, the rollover of the New START Treaty uh, for five years. Um, now, there's a defense for what they did, which is that they were facing um, a very tight timeline. The treaty needed to be renewed um, uh, by February 5th, which did not give them a lot of time. Um, that being said, um, I uh, and a, a colleague had advocated uh, a year ago that the United States seek uh, a shorter rollover, a one or perhaps two year rollover, uh, while we uh, assess the willingness of Russia to actually negotiate about the nuclear weapons that are actually not constrained by the New START Treaty. They're very large holdings of, uh, of theater level nuclear weapons, so-called non-strategic nuclear weapons, although uh, these theater or tactical, as they're sometimes called, nuclear weapons, if they went off in a place like uh, Estonia, would be regarded by the Estonians as extremely strategic. But mm -hmm. for, for the purposes of arms control, we make these distinctions. Um, but uh, those need to be uh, brought um, you know, into the arms control picture, uh, as do a lot of these new exotic uh, weapons systems uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin has announced uh, you know, a, a nuclear-powered cruise missile and others that are not covered by the treaty. Um, and I thought that uh, a one- or two-year rollover, while we assessed the willingness of uh, the Russians to negotiate, um, would would be useful. Uh, and the administration, at the end of the day, didn't even try. I mean, I can understand that mm -hmm. they might not have had enough time to negotiate this, although the Trump administration had gotten pretty far along with getting the Russians to agree to a shorter rollover, uh, but they didn't even try. Uh, now they're facing um, a set of uh, questions uh, that are going to be difficult. What do they do about the Navalny poisoning? Um, yeah. And this is, you know, a pattern now with the, with the Russians uh, using a banned chemical weapon um, for the purposes of political murder. I mean, that's, those are violations, in essence, of the chemical weapons uh, treaty. Certainly the, the use against the Skripals was in, in, in uh, England. Um, I suppose one could argue that we're entitled to poison our own citizens on our own territory in the case of Navalny, but you get the general, general yeah. point here uh, about the chemical weapons issues. Uh, and then there's the solar winds hack and the Russian interference in the 2020 election, which we now know from the DNI report that was released on that subject, 
that um, Russian uh, interference uh, was aimed at the same end as it was in 2016, which is to say, to help facilitate the election of Donald Trump, um, and that it was the most uh, serious uh, case of foreign election interference that we faced, uh, unlike what had been spun uh, by former DNI John Ratcliffe, uh, Rick Grinnell, and and um, Bob Barr. Um, uh, really, it was Russia, not China, not Iran, that were the main culprits here. And so the Biden administration now has to respond to all of these things. And it's taken a little bit of time, uh, which I think has some of us a little nervous about what's taking them so long to respond. Although part of it, to be fair, may be the fact that the principals and the Biden national security team are by and large home alone. Um, and there's yeah. growing, growing concern about the lack, not just of confirmed uh, folks, but the lack of nominations uh, from the Biden team um, that uh, is, you know, I think uh, increasingly going to run the risk of hamstringing their own uh, foreign policy. Let's let's move on to China. Um, I don't know whether you prioritize it this way, but it it, it does seem from the outside that the the, the yes, obviously dealing with Saudi Arabia, dealing with Russia are are high priorities for the administration. But number one is going to be uh, dealing with with China. Those talks seem to have gotten off uh, on somewhat shaky. Footing. Um, so give, give me your sense of, of the Biden administration's approach to China and how it's going. So that's one of the very interesting um, you know, developments of the early months of the, of the Biden administration. Um, you know, as you know, uh, President uh, Trump in December of uh, 2017 issued a national security strategy. And then uh, uh, Secretary Mattis, Jim Mattis, um, produced a national defense strategy document in 2018. And th those uh, strategies prioritized uh, our great power um, uh, near-peer competitors, Russia and China, as the most important uh, challenges and threats that we face. Now, uh, I don't normally, as you know, Charlie, lavish much praise on the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. um, but I will give them this. The national security strategy uh, is meant to be produced under under statute. It's a re legal requirement uh, in the first year of every administration. To to my knowledge, I think the Trump administration was the only one that's ever met that uh, one year suspense for for actually producing uh, hmm. the document. Um, the document itself uh, had some uh, unfortunate Trump um, Trumpist uh, rhetorical flourishes, but was pretty sound otherwise. And it's also pretty clear if you see the speech, if you listen to the speech that President Trump gave when he announced the uh, national security strategy, that it's highly unlikely that he had actually read the document that he was announcing and touting, um, because the speech he gave was at variance with some elements of the document, hmm. which was much more supportive of our traditional alliances, et cetera, than, than he uh, would, would have allowed one to think. What's interesting is... Um, I think the ideas in that document, uh, and uh, and in the, and in particular the national defense strategy that that Mattis subsequently issued, there there is a pretty broad consensus uh, in the foreign policy commentariat and in the uh, policy class uh, on those points. Um, you know, this is of course the famous blob that uh, 
that Ben Rhodes railed against in the Obama years. But the blob, to the degree that it exists, uh, you know, does believe China is the most serious long-term threat to the United States. And I think the Biden team recognizes that, and they issued an interim strategic guidance document. And the thing that's really striking about it is there's much more continuity there than there is change in many ways. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about climate and other issues, et cetera. But in terms of uh, the broad strategic direction, prioritizing China is definitely a part of it, as, as you suggested. And I give the I give Secretary Blinken and Jake Sullivan pretty high marks uh, for going to uh, Alaska, meeting with um, their Chinese counterparts, and giving as good as they got when the Chinese attacked us. Um, you know, for um, for being you know imperialist and and uh, throwing our weight around the world. Uh, I think they held their own. Moreover, uh, within a couple of days, they had orchestrated along with the EU. Uh, some uh, pretty tough sanctions um, on on the Hong Kong issue um, and the Uyghurs, and I think that's all uh, all to the good. So while you and I are talking, there's some breaking news. Uh, just to know if you can provide any perspective on this, the Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, issued a statement in the last, uh, well, I guess maybe in a half hour or so, saying that the United States has received. million settlement from Sudan that will be paid out to the victims and families of uh, the victims of the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya, the Mm -hmm. 2000 attack on the USS Cole, and the murder of a U.S. uh, US AID employee. So um, do do you have any, I mean, do you have any background on that, what that, uh, that's about, uh, why why Sudan is uh, paid out that money? Uh, well, I think this is part of the, uh, you know, this goes back to the Abraham Accords and Sudan's recognition of Israel and concerns that the um, uh, steps that were taken to facilitate that, including removing certain sanctions from Sudan for its support for terrorism, was going to disadvantage um, the uh, plaintiffs in um, in those cases. So I suspect what this is, is a way, way of squaring that circle, although I, I haven't seen the statement, so. So we haven't talked about this yet, but obviously um, one of the big uh, issues that the Biden administration is going to have to deal with is the Iran deal, whether or not to go back to the deal that had been brokered by the Obama-Biden administration. And I know that that uh, your task force issued a, uh, a paper saying uh, no going back. So give me your sense of what the Biden administration should do with the Iran deal, because this was a a bright red line between the Obama foreign policy and the Trump foreign policy. What is the Obama, what is the Biden policy going to be regarding the Iran nuclear deal? Well, so as, again, as you know, Charlie, during the campaign, uh, then um, candidate Biden um, said that he uh, intended to bring, you know, the U.S. back into the uh, joint comprehensive plan of action, the Iran nuclear deal, if Iran rejoined the deal and, and uh, ended the violations that it's been engaged in of the limits on nuclear enrichment and other activities um, that had been agreed uh, back in 2015. Um, but he also said, and the Democratic platform also said, that the deal needed to be uh, re-entered, but as the basis for further negotiation to uh, both deal with those issues that had been outside of the uh, 
the terms or the ambit of the of the JCPOA, which included the very large uh, buildup of uh, missile capability that Iran is engaged in, um, as well as making the deal uh, as as the platform put it longer and stronger, uh, or lengthier and, and stronger, lengthen and strengthen. I guess was the language. Um, so uh, it's not that simple. Uh, just to you know, walk back into the deal for a variety of of reasons. Uh, one, of course, is that uh, Iran is uh, massively out of compliance uh, with the terms of the deal, and it will take quite a bit of time uh, to come back into compliance. Um, and it will be difficult for the um, Biden administration to lift any sanctions uh, while Iran is massively out of compliance and. A p- part of of this, of course, is uh, tied to the fact that um, uh, that the Iranians have said they won't come back into compliance until all the sanctions uh, are lifted by the United States. And therein, there's a difficulty for the Biden administration because the Trump administration, in addition to restoring all the nuclear sanctions uh, on a number of Iranian institutions and, and persons, has layered on top of those other sanctions that um, uh, are based on ter- support for terrorism and other uh, proliferation activity. And so even removing the nuclear sanctions won't get the you know, Iranians uh, quite the sanctions relief they hope for. Um, the Iranians may also, I, I can imagine, uh, be concerned that uh, having not secured the, uh, uh, the approval of Congress, that is, the Obama administration mm-hmm. didn't go to Congress um, to get approval of the JCPOA, which then made it very easy for the Trump administration to reverse this, uh, that the Iranians are going to want some kind of guarantee that whatever they do is not subject to easy reversal, therefore uh, f- forcing the administration to do something to get congressional approval. And there they face not just Republican opposition, which will be almost unanimous, and that's 50% of the Senate. But there are a large number of Democrats uh, who are skeptics or were opposed to the JCPOA back in 2015, including, including Chuck Schumer, including the Senate Majority yeah. Leader, including the Chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, including his next ranking uh, member, Ben Cardin, uh, and the King of the Senate, Joe Manchin. <laughs> so um, this is going to be politically. I think very tricky. And there's one other major, I think, kind of elephant in the room, which is a couple of years ago, in a very daring um, operation, the Mossad exfiltrated a very large archive of nuclear uh, information uh, records of the uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the scientist who was in charge of the Iranian nuclear program, uh, who was assassinated last November. presumably by Israeli um, Mm. intelligence. Um, That archive has produced enormous amounts of information now available to the IAEA, whose director, uh, Director Grossi, uh, recently said, Iran's got to come clean about all of this. Um, Because uh, they were required under the JCPOA to make an accounting of their past military dimensions of their activity. They gave a very incomplete and in some ways misleading and false account of that to the IA in 2015. 
And Grossi is now calling for them to account for all this additional information. Now, I think that the Biden administration would have preferred to sweep all of this under the rug. But I think particularly with Grossi's statement uh, coming out of the IEA, that's going to be very difficult to do. And particularly now with a letter from Senator Menendez and Graham, they put together a letter of 43 senators uh, raising a whole host of these issues. Mm. Uh, I think the politics of this are going to be very, very forbidding. Now, there are a couple of news reports out in the last day or two that the Biden administration, whose initial proposal, if you come back into compliance, will come back, was just out of hand rejected by the Iranians, is now talking about maybe something uh, less ambitious, like if you stop all of your nuclear or some of your most egregious nuclear violations, will relieve some of the sanctions uh, pressure on you. But I think that's not likely to win um, you know, Iranian approval. There's also some suggestion that the administration is fishing around to get the Iranians to sit down with them to uh, map out a roadmap uh, for how to you know, get through all of these difficulties that I've just described in terms of getting back to the agreement. Um, and we'll see whether the Iranians pick that up. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that they will, but you, you never know. Well, how much pain are they suffering? Uh, you know, we had we had reports at at, at various stages that that the economy was uh, was being impacted uh, so significantly that it might actually endanger the regime. But listening to you, that doesn't sound like they feel that squeeze. That they still feel that they have some elbow room here, despite the the sanctions. Well, no, the sanctions have taken a tremendous toll. Um, and there have been uh, over the last several years, uh, you know, periodic outbreaks of, um, of uh, public um, uh, anger at the um, at the regime. Um, and in some some senses, the regime is, uh, you know, is is suffering a, a lot. I mean, um, the, um, the there have been now some exemptions for. Uh, COVID vaccines and things like that that uh, have been on humanitarian grounds uh, granted to to the Iranians, but the Iranian regime is is under enormous pressure, and that's another reason why I think um, the administration is going to have a hard time removing some of the sanctions because people generally recognize that um, the sanctions turned out to be far more powerful uh, than people realized and have put much more pressure on the Iranians. Uh, if you take that pressure off, what reason would they have to negotiate? So let's talk about the, the the flip side not not the people who are problematic, but the 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 allies um, who had been basically put to the back of the bus uh, during the, the the Trump years. One of the obvious uh, goals of the Biden administration will be to restore those alliances, the confidence of our allies, the personal ties between the EU and uh, and NATO. In the United States, uh, so talk to me a little bit about this. Whether there, you know, whether that's going to be easily repairable, or whether or not the Trump years were um, a lasting shock to that system by 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 reminding people that maybe the United States was not as stable uh, an ally as perhaps they had uh, they had once hoped or believed. Well, I think you know if the problem were only the Trump administration, it might be a little bit you know easier. But I mean, the truth of the matter is, transatlantic ties have been very, very strained now for twenty years, uh, going back to you know Bush forty three. Obviously, you know the Iraq War um, created a, a, you know some uh, enormous tensions with 
both France and Germany and some other allies. Um, the Obama administration, um, you know, was not um, noticeably uh, warmer to our um, to our European allies than the Trump administration. I mean, it was more polite and less polite <laughs> and less vulgar. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, if you go back and look at Barack Obama's interview with Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, the Goldberg variations, as I call it, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it it's, um, you know, it's replete with all sorts of uh, criticism of our allies for not pulling their weight, uh, for constantly carping about U.S. policies. Um, and it, it's, again, it's more polite, and I don't want to imply any kind of moral equivalence between Obama and, and Trump. But um, but from the point of view of allies, uh, they look back now on 12 years in which they see the United States as not being totally reliable. Um, and they wonder whether that's a, you know, a, a you know, a blip uh, of some kind in which there'll now be a, a recurrence to the post-war norm uh, or whether this is more of a permanent condition. And it's not going to be that easy for the Biden folks to say, as Biden has said, uh, we're back, or as Tony Blinken has said, you know, diplomacy is back. Um, you know, on this issue, our allies are likely to say we're from Missouri. You know, we, we want to, mm -hmm. we want you to show us, um, you know, not just tell us. And, you know, that, um, you know, puts me in mind of, of, uh, you know, a, uh, comment that my late former boss, uh, George Schultz, who unfortunately passed in, in mm -hmm. February, uh, at the, um, at the age of 100, God bless him. Um, he used to say that alliance management and, and dealing with our allies was like gardening. It required constant attention, um, and, uh, watering and, um, you know, um, manuring and whatnot. Um, and so, um, I think, you know, to his credit, um, uh, their credit, Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, um, have, have been working at that. Um, Jake Sullivan, I'm sure has been working the phones with his counterparts as national security advisors, but, um, it, it's going to be a constant effort. And this is where, by the way, the, uh, absence of subordinate officers of the government in the sub cabinet positions can be, uh, a, a, a problem. You don't have a, um, you know, of course, I'm concerned about the position of Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. You don't have a confirmation there yet, and the nomination of uh, Colin Call may be, may be in trouble on the floor. I don't know. It, it was reported out on a totally split 10-10 vote, mm -hmm. in the, or 13-13 vote in the Senate Armed Services Committee. Um, uh, the nominee for uh, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, uh, Victoria Newland. Uh, I don't believe has even had a hearing yet. Hmm. Um, and um, uh, I might not be right about that, but I'm pretty sure she hasn't had a hearing. Um, the uh, deputy secretary of state, uh, Wendy Sherman just got uh, confirmed uh, in the last uh, couple of days. So, you know, unless we start getting these other uh, appointments in this uh, process of reinstitutionalizing relationships that I mentioned earlier, which is obviously a big problem with uh, Saudi Arabia and and uh, Turkey uh, because of the special case of the personalization there, but still true more broadly throughout the government um, that it needs to be reinstitutionalized in those um, 
uh, ministry to ministry ties need to be rebuilt. It, this is going to be a long-term project. It's not going yeah, to... How, how, how far behind the curve is the Biden administration? You've mentioned this several times that they're home alone um, and that the, 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 the you don't have uh, the Senate confirmations. Is this... You know, what, what's the historical par- parallel on when, when Obama came into office? Is this, is this much slower than other administrations? It is slower, and I don't have the exact numbers. Yeah. With, but And look, part of it is not their fault. Part of it is the late ascertainment uh, of the uh, election result uh, by uh, the General mm-hmm. Services Administration, which uh, held up uh, kicking into uh, place of the uh, Presidential Transition Act monies that flow to support the um, transition activities. And uh, so we're was, still paying a price for that. We're mm-hmm. still paying a price for that. And the Biden administration is paying a price for that. But we're now getting to the point where you know that 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 was a valid excuse, um, you know, for being a little bit slow. But now I think people on the Hill, uh, particularly those uh, in the Armed Services Committee, looking at the Department of Defense, are saying, "Well, where are the nominations for all these other positions?" Um, it, it's beginning to be not just a question of, you know, well, it's not our fault we had a delayed uh, transition. I mean, I I was in the Bush forty one administration, and it took us until the summer uh, to get some of the um, you know, uh, uh, under and assistant secretaries confirmed. Um, but, uh, we're already now getting into territory where you might find the same thing. And of course you had the same delayed transition in, tw- in 2000, uh, because of the uncertain, um, election results in Florida and the Supreme court, you know, resolution only mm. you know, on Christmas Eve, of, as it were of the, of the election. So, I mean, uh, Again, I don't want to put too much blame on the Biden administration, but I do think it's something they've got to be attentive to now. Ambassador Eric Edelman, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Ambassador Edelman is a former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and has uh, been a uh, quasi-regular on the podcast. And you can uh, you can read his stuff in the bulwark, and uh, you've been writing for the Dispatch as well. So uh, again, appreciate it, Eric, uh, that you came back. Thanks, Charlie. It's always great to be with you. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.